0: That makes a lot more sense. It's like you li- You helped so us limiting. win the war. Now we'll sacrifice the victims of the war. You helped us win. Terrible, but I get that. I um, get.
1: Oh I, yeah, I get a lot I'm of be, terrible things. Sacrificing yes. your own ki- children. I
2: don't I'm like. Really?
0: <laughs> I can't wait. For, I can't wait for this to get out. Shail justifies <laughs> human sacrifice.
1: We're justifying human sacrifice on this show today, kids. How can you integrate this into your religious practices and show results
0: into your culture in the future? It didn't work for the Aztecs, kids. They ended up losing.
1: Welcome to the Furrowed Brow with Jeffrey Kipler. All right, here we go. Welcome to the Furrowed Brow. My guest is Chael Bessadime, creator of the History of the Land of Israel podcast after enjoying 19 actually I think I'm on 20 episodes now
0: I think we have (laughs) so far so you're doing well
1: oh yeah no I'm up to date (laughs) I didn't I didn't actually even reach out to you until I was like 19 episodes in so I was like I had planned somewhere in the first like few I was like I'm gonna reach out to this guy and then I got to like 19 and I'm like I still hadn't reached out I'm like I really hope he was Bonds to me this...
0: <laughs> what a <laughs> no, waste
1: otherwise yeah. Little, i was like i need content man um no it, i really enjoyed all, all of your podcasts uh and i reached out to you uh to see if you would be on the furrowed brown and we're really delighted that you accepted um shale's podcast covers israel specifically though it's interesting it's not just the people of israel it's the land of israel and the various peoples who have uh, inhabited that land over the years actually starting all the way back with the dinosaurs and i think his uh, 20th episode now is starts talking about the relevancy of the biblical stories of the plagues and whether they actually happened or you know how much uh, historical truth there is to that and um yeah, thanks you so, Shail. Thanks so much for joining me.
0: Sure, my honor. I love your podcast too. You really have a gift for getting um, free-flowing dialogue going. That's rare.
1: That I, I appreciate that. that. That's what we go for here. A uh, little, little longer format. And um, th- thanks for taking cutting out. Because I, by the way, everybody, I ask all of my guests to carve out at least three hours to make sure that we get sufficient time. So. Uh, thanks so much for uh, taking so much time out of your day today.
0: So it's a weekend and there's no football. So excellent, excellent.
1: Um, so you're you're from
0: Israel, but where where do are you you where do you live now? I'm in Hollywood. No right now. kidding, in Hollywood. Yeah, very close to the Boulevard. Um, yeah, I, I grew up in Jerusalem, mm-hmm. born and raised. Um, went to the army in Israel, undergrad, masters. Worked for the Israeli government. Um, The last 10 years, I've been living in North America.
1: No kidding. So what brought you over to North America?
0: Um, My um, college education, uh, academics. I did um, my PhD at the University of Calgary. I did uh, fellowships at Harvard and at UCLA. And what were you you studying? Was this all Israeli history kind of stuff? um, I started with general international relations. Oh, okay. And... To be fully honest, it was scholarships that kept pushing me in an Israel direction. Everyone kept offering me Israel scholarships and <laughs> it, it it just kind of went from there. And my my curiosity as an undergrad was so broad. Yeah. Um, but that's sort of where I ended up because I'm I was willing to, to sort of look at anything. And then I also had experience in Israeli government. So mm-hmm. made research on Israeli international relations. Much easier. I had access to the primary documents. I knew how it worked, so I kind of ended up there. Gotcha. Um, and the ancient stuff that I'm doing now—that's just—that's um, a hobby. I don't. I never had formal training in um, in in those periods, aside from introductory history courses back when I was was an undergrad. But I do have uh, PhD level research tools. So I'm using them on a new period. So every episode I do is so much fun because I'm discovering all, all this stuff that, that I, I didn't know. Gotcha. So, so what? Journey of discovery.
1: So, and I definitely want to ask you, like, how you go about making each episode here. But before we get into that, how did you decide to do the podcast?
0: Um, I really wanted to do a podcast for a while. Because, you know, when you do academic research, um, you don't really reach all that many people. Yeah. (laughs) Like, I'll give you an example. I have an article. It's considered the, you know, definitive article on early U.S. policy towards Israeli settlements, right? And, um, you know, how many people have ever read that thing? It's been cited a bunch of times, but like, what, 200 people have actually read that in the entire world? Uh, And every single one of my episodes gets several times that exposure so it's nice to actually have um platform that is meaningful that you can yeah you can connect and and reach out to people and of course academia has also become caught up in jargon yeah and fashion uh you have to follow you know if if you're not writing about right now if you're doing history that's not african-american studies or or native studies i mean no one cares uh, for example and then there's all the jargon in it if you don't use it then they won't publish you. If you use it, no one will read it. So the great thing about a podcast, as as you know, is you you can make high level knowledge accessible um, to people. So it was a great, a much better application in many ways of my research yeah. skills than anything I've done before. It's it's far more rewarding than writing uh, academic work. Strangely enough, I didn't think it would be. There's yeah. there's no comparison. Yeah,
1: yeah. I I, I think there's really something to and, uh, and I've talked about this on previous podcasts about the, the I think the Greeks called it, somebody told me, the, the the dialogos, where people would have a conversation about something and that it's much easier to learn by watching people or participating in that conversation, as opposed to going in and wading through documents where, you know, w- w- when they did the printing press, you had the scale of being able to push out all of those ideas to people in mass that you just, you know, before that it was, it was, you know, it was listening to people speak right lectures, but that didn't scale at all. But now that we have the internet and these podcasts, all of a sudden like these conversations scale in a way that is just much more effective than they used to be. You can have and And Jordan Peterson talks about this. Uh, Joe Rogan's talking about this. You can have the best people in the world on a subject and you just sitting in where you know in 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 hollywood can can uh, can participate that in in a way and yeah that's i mean that's one of the reasons i i got into podcasting was like i'm just getting so much out of these conversations that
0: hell i want to participate in them so of course the the problem is the democratization of knowledge means you don't know how competent the people who are, are giving you the knowledge are uh, and I've certainly and, and, fallen victim to that before, you know, and still do, I'm sure. We all do. So you have to, you do, if you want to do history, and so many podcasters do this great, um, have to know how to approach primary documents, because yep. then there's, it's very hard to, to really learn history from anything other than primary documents, or if you're not if you're not basing your research at least to a great extent yep. on on primary documents, I mean, I found that when when I was doing research on, on U.S. policy on the settlements, is that everything that everyone says about the topic in secondary sources is wrong. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, just because it, they never read the documents.
1: One of your recent tweets actually kind of blew me away. Where it was, you were talking about how the Bible talks about Eden becoming created from the rib of Adam. Where it, that was you, right? It was that was not me, that was not you. Somebody was talking about this. I'm misremembering the source, but it's like then they went through the uh the etymology of like where where the the, what the root word was, and it was something that just meant side. Um, and that's right, it was okay. So you're familiar with this idea where like you where if you just took the in the King James version of it, rib, it doesn't really make sense, but if we you think about it as side. You know, God split Adam in half to create Eve, two complementary
0: sides. Not that one was just made from the piece of a rib, right? That's right. That's right. The uh, generally speaking, the Tanakh, you know, what we call what we call the the Bible um, or the Old Testament is a lot less um, misogynistic than a lot of the Christian uh, (laughs) interpretations. Not that it's not misogynistic in many ways. Don't get me wrong. But well, the world's the a little misogynistic. Are, it's the world's a little misogynistic. Yeah, yeah, um, and and Judaism took misogyny a, a step further from its Canaanite ancestors, which okay. is I'm, I'm looking at right now. But um, yeah, I, look, we have a serious problem with um, just accessing what it says in in the Tanakh as modern people. Yeah, because there's there's really no way to read it without making an interpretation right so you're talking here about these about these christian translations and christian translations either knowingly in the worst case scenario or unknowingly are making the text conform to the new testament and the idea of looking for the messiah in in the old testament right Right. and meanwhile but the so jews say oh read the jewish translations the jewish translations are better because they're not introducing a ideology that didn't exist at the time yeah so they're better in a lot of ways but they're also um taking out a lot of the historical context again knowingly or unknowingly uh, there's a lot of hints towards say polytheism and things like that in in the tanakh yeah. that are removed sanitized in the official jewish uh translations huh. um and then even, i know hebrew it's my native language like i can sort of read it directly, but then is is biblical Hebrew a different language or the same language? Are the words interpreted the same or not? I'm also interpreting it in my own way. So we have a serious problem with accessing it, even when you when you know uh, Hebrew. And if you learn biblical Hebrew, you're usually trained with uh, a certain amount of ideological baggage behind that, whether that's in the university, whether that's in, in um, Jewish religious schools, so we have a real problem accessing the text as it was originally written.
1: Yeah, and I, it's like the, the. So I, I, I was atheist for like the longest time, and I'd say now I am religious, but probably not in the same way that most people think of religious and belief in God. It it, it 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 seems to me that there have to be truths in these teachings otherwise they wouldn't get passed down you know and survive but but if you accept that you also have to accept that the teachings themselves have to be based in reality as we observe it not some idealized sort of version of it and i feel like one of the things that you're saying here it's like what what comes to me is like you know when people say oh well Jesus would have been a socialist or whatever. It's like, well, you know, he was a Jew and uh, he believed in the Old Testament. Maybe was providing a different point of view on some of these some of these things and whatnot. But the idea that all of a sudden he's going to have matched exactly what some people view as idealistically good these days just doesn't seem to hold water to me. It's like you have you have to think about the fact that this guy was a jew in the time of the romans where the romans were these like they were the empire like coming into like subjugate things and like you've got these people who are like you know they're not slaves exactly but they've got these foreign occupiers there they got you know it's pretty bad and he's got a different sort of message to um to help them get through what maybe they were uh,
0: suffering in the, uh, at that time i don't know
1: wait does that make sense does that resonate with you at all
0: sure i mean on the one hand uh our current political concepts are completely alien to to first century judea right. uh there's there's no no relation the problems they faced the way they conceived of politics the way they conceived of the economy yeah the idea of capitalism which socialism is the reaction to mm-hmm. is it hasn't been it exists to an extent but it hasn't really been understood mm-hmm. and all that but on the other hand um the only way that people can address what happened then is by looking at through the prism of today mm-hmm. so no yeah. matter how careful we are how many pre- i mean think of any any college class you've ever been to or any book you've ever read on this stuff they will always warn you you know it's anachronistic to do this and do that then they'll always finish the class or the book with a comparison to today or trying to make it relevant to today after having warned you. And the reason isn't because they're hypocrites, maybe a little bit, but it's because there's really no other way for modern people to look at things except for what they understand. Yeah. You know, they say the, the past is a foreign country, like, you know, that yeah. quote. Um, we don't really know what it was like there. We can put ourselves into a very limited degree, no matter how much we study it. And at the end of the day, if we want to make it accessible to people, we do have to make the comparisons. So it's kind of sad. It's a little bit like what I said, where the text is not accessible to us. Also, the the time is limited accessibility uh, to us. So you're right about all that. But, you know, people on the right do the same thing. People on the left do the same thing. Not necessarily because they're trying to dishonorably win an argument, although there's some of that, too. They just don't know any other way to to look at it.
1: Yeah, for sure. So tell uh, bring me through how do how do you go about creating all these episodes just so our listeners know if they haven't uh, uh i'm sure they'll go out and listen to some episodes you you do about 20 30 minutes uh for an episode how much I, how much time does it take to put together
0: what do you do to make those happen i aim to go for like four thousand words which okay. ends up being a little bit over over half an hour okay uh i found that to be to be good yeah but usually i end up with more rather than less because overriding is my disease but uh, um, how long it takes me to put together really depends on, on the topic. Um, if, I, if I have really good secondary sources or even better, I have a, a good collection of primary sources, I, I can do the whole thing in a few hours. Oh, wow. Um, like six, seven hours. If I'm struggling with finding good sources, and by good, I, I don't only really mean reliable, I also mean interesting. I, yeah. I, I want to bring people in, in some way, instead of saying, you know, in this era, the ceramics had this kind of pattern and that kind of sharp edge. It, there's a limit to, to how much mileage you can get out of that. So at worst, it, it can take me um, a good 24 hours. Uh, and a lot of that is finding the right the right sources. But at, at the end of the day, uh the research is usually manageable.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So you're doing, do you set
1: out a topic? Do you, you know, you're 20 episodes in, how do you lay out the topics beforehand? Or are you just kind of um, like, how far in advance are you planning? Like
0: how <laughs> I had a great plan when I first put together the podcast that I've had to completely and totally ignore uh, <laughs> as, as I go along, because everything I assumed was, was wrong. Some things that I thought I would have a lot to work with I had nothing to work with, and some things that I thought would just be minor ended up being being uh huh. being massive. Um, like for example, I'm doing the high scores um, Canaanites taking over Egypt right now, which I which I'd always heard correctly something that they don't have a lot of um, information about. But it turns out that there's a lot of hidden depth to to that topic, especially as they pertain to to the Israelites. It, it, in fact, what I'm starting to see—this is my pet theory and tr- starting to develop, not completely on my own here—is that the high scores, the Canaanites who ruled Egypt, were probably the source of of most of the early Israelite stories about about the Book of Exodus. and and all those things. They were the sort of cultural repository of stories about what was happening in Egypt at that time. Since we don't really have archaeological um, um, evidence of the Exodus story Mm -hmm. as such, um, but this is around the same time and they're Canaanites, there's a good chance this is how that information and how those stories uh, emerge. So even though it's not necessarily the most Uh, important period in Egyptian history for the story of the land of Israel it's central and I'm already on my second episode of it and my guess is it'll it'll go on to several episodes so that's an example of how I've had to completely throw away the plan it always ends up with you doing more episodes than you expected uh, when you do history every history podcaster I've ever talked to says the same thing you're like I'm going to reach this date by episode 15 no you're not you're, half, you're absolutely not <laughs> unless you're half-assing it you're not because there's all these great things that you need to 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 build the story. gotcha so no plan there was a plan it's gone i'll so make how, another plan and that'll also be gone <laughs> so
1: how i mean how long do you think that this is gonna go like how far away from you know because like i mean the I would imagine the crescendo is you know we the Israelis come the the European Jews go to Israel and you know you bring us into like modern day. You're still back in the time of Egypt. How
0: long is it going to take you to get there? These are very difficult questions. It's like asking a woman her age or weight. Or <laughs> I, mean, I sit there thinking, okay, at this rate, I will be in my eighties. Yeah, <laughs> I I don't I don't know how to answer that. Um, I know for sure that I want to reach, uh, the Islamic conquest. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm really sick of it at that point, I may stop there. Okay. My guess is I won't, and I will continue to, um, to modern Israel. Um, I, there are, the I, I'm not going to hide my influences. I have like direct influences in this podcast. Basically, Okay. I'm I'm basically ripping off another podcast. I'll just oh, say okay. it. There's a podcast called the British History Podcast. <laughs> um, I absolutely love that podcast. Uh, and he's been going for, I don't know, about eight years. What is this like and the I, history of the land of Britannia or something like that? Yeah, okay. yeah, He starts at the very beginning and he goes through. And then I was like, oh my God, oh, I'd do. love to listen to one of these about about Israel, about, about my country. Huh. And, and there's just there's no such thing. You asked where I got the idea. There's no such thing. Not only is there no such thing. There's no such book. Huh. There's really nothing that goes from the from the very beginning until until modern Israel. Like the closest thing you have is this—at least that I'm aware of. If anyone knows anything better, let me know. But you have the Oxford Illustrated History of the Holy Land right here, and all, all this is is a collection of chapters by great scholars about different periods. It doesn't—it always starts at the Bible. It's very minimal, and. Uh, you know, no one's done the, the whole narrative. Why? Why do you think that is? Well, uh, I think that more than any other history, and this is one another reason I want, I want to do this podcast, the history of the land of Israel is one of cherry-picking and selection of periods. Sure. Because everyone has an agenda regarding it, and if you put together all of the periods... You can't make a, a, a meta narrative that supports one claim to the land or one story. You just can't. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, I like I grew up in the Israeli school system and we we learned the Zionist approach to history. Now that makes it sound very indoctrination-y, and it really wasn't. Mm-hmm. I have to say, secular school, I don't know what's going on right now. There's a new government there. God knows what's happening now. My guess is this is different now to some extent but yeah. when i was a kid really it was it was very haphazard it was no one was indoctrinating you um no one was teaching you this land belongs to you the arabs are this, this it, it really wasn't like that it was much more pluralistic back then but having said that everyone was teaching you were zionists right so you know they had that that viewpoint and this is how you learned jewish history you had bible we were proud we were free we were beating everyone not historically correct, but okay. We were exiled by the Romans. Uh, in the diaspora, we were miserable. We were treated badly. All we did was suffer and pray that we want to come back to the land of Israel. Then we did. We beat the Arabs, and everything's great now, and we're we're back, baby. You know that. That's basically the the story that you learn. Um, and it, it just glosses over the the entire diaspora. It also completely ignores everything that happened before uh, Judaism. Then you talk to Palestinian activists yeah so they you know they don't really know what to do with the biblical era uh some of them say the canaanites were palestinians some of them say jesus was a palestinian etc but they'll focus on the long period yeah that muslims were were in charge and it's a long period i mean you know we're talking about well for millennia so you know you can focus on uh on that and then you you start history there then the jews that start arriving in the late 19th century, like where did these guys come from, right? Yeah. So so you frame history differently. Then you ignore the fact that, that Zionists have been there now for over a century. So you ignore the fact that that's a long time too. And you ignore that part of the claim. So you're you're putting history in this particular box. And if you're Christian, then it starts in the Old Testament, right? Continues through through to Jesus, the Crusades, yeah. but you ignore Islam, basically, except for, you know, the crusade the Crusaders fought them. So no matter what you're trying to do with, with the history of the land of Israel, there's parts that you, you're just not interested in.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, everybody everybody's on a team, right? And the story and the narrative that you put forward either helps or hinders your team in, in,
0: in many ways. It seems, you know. That's right. And when you get to the history of Britain, you know, um, it used to be that Britain, the British were on the Norman team. Right? Yes. 1066 yeah. was 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 good. Now they're like, okay, you know, those guys were also our ancestors, you know, we we the people before 1066, they're also interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's no it's it's much less controversial to go back. And so all the hist all the parts of the history, it's also very artificial, but all the parts of the history kind of add up to being modern British. So it makes sense there was a British podcast before that. And I've seen books about British history that are like that that I don't see about the, about the land of Israel, because no matter what you're trying to prove, that book will not prove it. And that's basically what I'm trying to show is that any attempt to say that land belongs to one people is very artificial yeah. and, and irrelevant. And one of the things I want to highlight, I'm already doing it with, with the Canaanites and the Amorites and all that. But what I'm really going to focus a lot on is showing all the other people that lived in the land yeah. that are not Jews, not Muslims, not Christians, not part of the big you know, uh, controversies, just people from other groups that have been there all along. People always ask, you know, who are the Druze and, and, and how did they show up? Who are the Samaritans? And I, I, I really want to get into their, their part. Uh, you know. And then there's a political agenda I have too. I'm a two-state solution guy. I'm a yeah. pluralist liberal. Um, and I think that it's important that we see that there's not one group that 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 the, the country belongs to so there is an agenda behind it i just think it's a good one and mm-hmm. i and it, my agenda happens to be served by historical reality of course that's what historians always think so <laughs> hi
2: of course gonna, <laughs> it
0: is <laughs> yeah interesting but I, i'm just diving in and 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 doing my best i'm not i definitely don't want to show that um that it's a Jewish land or that it's not a Jewish land. Right, and I am right. a Zionist, so I certainly have no interest in minimizing the Jewish role.
1: So, just because we've uh, mentioned the names a few
0: times and, you know, obviously
1: not everybody's going to have listened to these episodes. Who were the Amorites? Who were the Canaanites? And how do they relate to the Palestinians and the Israelis? Ooh, ooh,
0: tough one. Um, Okay. Well, the Canaanites and the Amorites are both very vague names. Mm-hmm. Um... In both cases, the, we know what the core of those people are, who are people who can definitely say these are Amorites, they're Canaanites, but we, it's hard to say where the group ends. That's a matter of, of great controversy, okay. right? So, so let's start, with, let's start with, with Canaanites. Canaanite is a geographical description. Mm-hmm. Um, so people who are not from Canaan called people from their Canaanites, everyone who lived there. So it became kind of a way of describing people come from that area. When we say Canaanite culture, what we basically mean is the culture of people who lived in the land. So this is like and, Texans. Yeah, it's like Texans. Okay. Exactly. It's like saying Texans, you know, love barbecue and football. It's it's kind of <laughs> like All sorts that. of Texans, but they all come from Texas. Okay. Exactly. So you say, you know, Canaanites did this, they did that. What you're basically saying is lots of people who lived in this land did that, or that is at least the stereotype they had. In other places and now we can also base that on archaeological evidence yeah and what is canaan at its peak it's uh, it's all of the levant almost it's uh israel lebanon syria and jordan mm-hmm. israel and and palestine uh so all of that and probably stretching into mesopotamia sometimes of course they had their own cultures uh so th- those are canaanites and um they're Civilization basically fades. There, it fades. Uh, the Israelites had something to do with that. The uh, the uh, Phoenicians had something to do with that. Mm-hmm. First, they were called the Philistines. Something to do with that with their with their invasion. The Egyptians had something to do with that. Basically, like their their culture fades rather than disappears. Mm-hmm. And when you're reading the, the the biblical era, what you're seeing is that a lot of what we call Canaanite culture was still there, but um, people were starting to move in different directions mm-hmm. from it, and the Bible is is um, a, a real example of that. If you if you look at the Bible, one of the best ways of looking at it is as a way of telling people, listen, these Canaanite traditions are not good. You've mm-hmm. got to move on from them, and they weren't the only ones ones doing that. But Canaanite described everyone living there, including what became the Israelites. So it, mm-hmm. it, everyone in okay. that area who didn't arrive after. 1200 BCE, pretty much was a Canaanite, mostly as a geographic descriptor. Amorites are are, uh, uh, even more more complex story Uh than that. (laughs) So, um, when we say Amorites, we're talking about a group of nomads who invaded Mesopotamia um, coming from uh, Central uh, Asia somewhere, taking over Mesopotamia and becoming the elites in cities there. The most famous Amorite of all is Hammurabi. Okay. So, yeah. So then the question becomes, okay, are these just elites? Or does the, do the elites running these cities share a culture with the people under them? And the most likely story is probably that at first they were elites, their culture influenced the people underneath them, the people underneath them's culture influenced them, and eventually they became sort of an Amorite uh, union mm-hmm. when when we have documents of Amorites talking about themselves as Amorites mm-hmm. or people talk about them as Amorites they're always talking about the elites that ran cities of course yeah always and that's why we have a lot of difficulty discerning whether they were Amorite regular people you know middle, Amorite middle class uh, we, we really we really don't know so we have a lot of a lot of difficulty with with that we I mean, know that just... the
1: There's just no records of people who aren't elites from those times, right? It's like, I mean, history is the history of the elites, or am I
0: thinking about that wrong? Yes and no. I mean, the documents are for the elites, written by elites. No one else could write. Right, yeah. fascinating, yeah. But what's fascinating is that a lot of these documents, when we have real archives, this is why I love primary documents, are addressing issues related to common people. Okay. So I have a, a... a couple of episodes on the Mari archives mm-hmm. and Mari is an Amorite city or at least their leadership was Amorite and we in the documents they address what poor people are doing all the time like we have you know if you listen to the episode or better yet um read the the book I absolutely love this book I can't recommend it enough it's Jack Sasson's from the Mari archives now the Mari archives they have like 80,000 tablets. And these are tablets these are government tablets, you know. Let's get taxes from this guy. Let's arrest that guy. Let's uh, take get, take over this city, you know. Let's assassinate this dude. It's it's all like that. <laughs> None of it is intended to be prop propaganda or very little of it's intended to be propaganda, which is why it's amazing. Mm-hmm. And they talk a lot there about about poor people. What are we going to do about this poor person? And sometimes in their own voices. So it's like there's uh one great document I talk about it in the podcast where a king is telling this guy to evacuate this woman from a house that belonged to some rich guy. And she he says this woman is tough. I can't evacuate her. She said this to me and he tells how she told him off and she said this to me and I was like I can't deal with this woman, you know. And he was quoting her and kind of with respect, kind of with trepidation. <laughs> And he's really giving you the words of this poor um, illiterate woman and her concerns. And you, you can get that as long as you have the primary documents. And then you cross that with the archeological evidence and you can get a window into the lives of, of regular poor people. Sometimes that's what survives. Sometimes we can't find the palace. Sometimes we find the village. Hmm. Um, So it's it's not that we can't do social history. It's not that we can't look at at the history of of poorer people. It's that it's it's sometimes more indirect and and more difficult. Gotcha,
1: gotcha. So okay, so you've got the Amorites, you've got the Canaanites, and how do they how do they do they become the people the the, the uh, Israel I shouldn't say Israelis. I should say do they become the Jews or like how does that transition happen?
0: Well haven't gotten there in the podcast yet, but I'm already reading up, reading up on it. Uh, but basically what we're talking about is we're talking about the Israelites are a group of Canaanites that gotcha. move in a different religious direction. they uh, one of the things that becomes very obvious once you read the um, Canaanite myths, the mythology, and compare it to biblical myths, is that they're coming from the same source. Yeah, they have the same cultural lexicon. The people who wrote the Tanakh knew these stories inside out. Right. We, we and um, they're rejecting certain elements of them yeah. knowingly. So there's no question that both geographically and culturally, they're coming from Canaanite society, but they're mm-hmm. part of the disintegration of the uh, hegemony of Canaanite culture. Okay. So other groups are moving in different directions. There's a lot of other influences coming in. Um, Israelites are are influenced to a great extent by Mesopotamian Mm -hmm. um, religion to a lesser extent by Egyptian. But they're also doing their own spin on it. One of the criticisms I've gotten from people um, about my approach, which is close to the academic approach, is that I, I'm showing that the Bible isn't original, that it's taken from uh, previous myths and from previous I, books.
1: Jonathan Pagow and Jordan Peterson make this point across the board. That it's like the synthesis of these, like, these stories that become, it's like this, none of it's original. It's all these like telling of these old myths and events and, and so on and so forth. It's the synthesis that is original.
0: I'd say more than that. Okay. I'd say more than that. I've actually had my admiration for the authors of the Bible uh, strengthened by okay. this exercise, which I wasn't expecting. I was expecting hmm. more along the lines of what you were saying. What I found is that while they live inside the Canaanite cultural milieu, they are very good at turning these legends on their heads, changing them, and giving them completely original original voice. Okay, um, And that's one of the remarkable reasons that the influence of of those books has has lasted so long. There's that, and then the fact that there's a certain universal element to it, there's an originality there's an, and 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 there's universality. So there's a, a lot of things that are um, that are different and are remarkable because if you look at uh, at Canaanite religion, it's it's often um, it's often very local based mm-hmm. on a specific city. If we looked at Biblos, for example, their main um, god was, goddess, was the goddess of the city, and, and that's very common. Um, the, the Tanakh at its best has a, a universal message, mm-hmm. uh, message as well. So I think there's a lot of originality there, but even the best creator is working within a certain cultural milieu, mm-hmm. and that milieu is the Canaanite milieu, still with influences from from other places. And I think one of the reasons that Canaanite culture is disintegrating at this time is because of the pressure the Philistines are, are, are putting on them as well. Uh, Canaanites never recovered from the invasion of the Sea Peoples in mm-hmm. 1200 BCE. That was um, you know, absolutely disastrous for, for that culture. They continued to exist for, for a few hundred years, but the, it was never the same. And who, so who, who, them, are these
1: sea, who are these sea people? These are Mediterranean people who live somewhere on the Mediterranean?
0: They, well, there's, there's a massive historical argument over where they come from, but honestly, I think it's been settled at this point. They're of Greek origin, okay. Mycenae, Mycenaean origin. Uh, exactly right. where in Greece and what, you know, hard to say exactly, More most likely because they were waves. So probably people came from Macedonia, people came from the islands, you know, I think right. that's why there's some confusion about that. But the DNA, the pottery, it's all an offshoot, uh, offshoot of the Greeks. Uh, before you know the kind of Greeks that we're that we we know and and love. I mean, I love anyway. Yeah. yeah.
2: Um,
0: so uh, they come from there. They bring a completely different different culture, and they're also uh, very good warriors. The Canaanites had their moments as warriors, but the Philistines were better, and um, so th- that puts the pressure on them. So so that that's where. But that's where the the Jews come from. Amorites are, are an important cultural influence on on Israelites, but I, it's not the same intimacy. Um, they're they're in a slightly different region. They're they're further to the north, mm-hmm. and um, their intimacy is a, a lot of it comes from the fact that that the Israelites and, and they share a lot of influences, but it doesn't. It's not the same familiarity uh, as far as as far as I I, I can see. It, it, Israelites aren't an offshoot of the Amorites, but the Amorites to a great extent become very identified with with the Canaanites. Or some scholars believe they are Canaanite elites. That goes back to the previous Got discussion, right? What was the other thing you asked? Or I think there was more. Oh, about the Palestinians, I think. Oh, um, gosh, I'm not. I'm not sure. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I, I, I'll, I'll say something about the Palestinians because yeah, lot please. Of people a lot of people talk about the connection between the Palestinians and these, and these early people. And the bottom line is, look, um, if you do DNA analysis, and then every time you mention DNA analysis, people jump at you and say you're doing Nazi science or whatever, but DNA analysis is fascinating. It yeah. gives you a lot of insights. Everyone who lives in Israel has shares DNA with these ancient peoples yeah. to some extent. And that goes before the Canaanites. That goes back to the Natufians, you know, the, the first agricultural people in history. Pioneers from the land of Israel, uh, Palestinians and Israelis share Natufian DNA, and so do a lot of other people in the region, like Armenians and Kurds, and these, you know, most people stayed in the same area their whole lives. Yeah. Then maybe they'd move fifty miles. There's a drought, whatever, but generally, and then their their children would move, you know, maybe fifty miles back. Towards, towards the land of Israel or whatever. And all the people who live here, uh, oops, sorry, I'm in Hollywood, so not here. That's a different story. <laughs> all the people who live, live in Israel now uh, share some of that DNA. Who has more, who has less, depends on the group, depends on the period. But part of the Palestinian DNA does come from those ancient people. However, their culture is um, almost irrelevant. Um to it, I mean the, the the culture that you have in the land of Israel, um starting with the Muslim conquest, has very little connection to that, because so there's been there were so many waves.
2: Mm-hmm. You had the
0: the Hellenic wave, mm-hmm. then you have the Roman wave, which is related, but but it's it's different. the Byzantines
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, and then you have you have the Muslims come in. then during the Muslim era, you have a lot of people leave. Then a lot of people come from other parts of the Arab world. So you really have a mixture of um, Arab culture, to state the obvious, Arab DNA from other parts of the Middle East, um, and cultural influences that come from completely different parts of the world in completely different periods. Uh, a lot of the early religious uh, influences on on Islam in, in the land of Israel are Hellenic, mm. like uh, the Manichean Manichaean uh, philosophies or, or or things of that sort. So the links culturally to the Canaanites for Palestinians are non-existent, I would say. Sure. But DNA wise, yes. Meanwhile for Jews it's there's also a um cultural link going back to the Canaanites.
1: Gotcha. Hey, but the the Jews DNA like how so? Correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that the modern I- Jewish Israelis largely came from Europe, um, as the Zionists. No, that's not
0: no, no, okay. that, that, there's two problems with, with that. Sure. Um, first of all, I'll start with the um, Ashkenazi Jews, those are the mm-hmm. European Jews. Yep. So, um, Ashkenazi Jews have strong DNA links to the Middle East still, right? If you um, did a DNA test on me, I'm an yeah. Ashkenazi Jew. My, my folks are from um, Lithuania and Poland mm-hmm. and Ukraine. So if you did a, a DNA analysis on me, I did the DNA analysis on an Ethiopian Jew. Obviously we, we, we look very different. We both have more in common, not usually not hundred percent of the time, with each other than I do with the Ukrainian and they would with an Ethiopian. Oh no, kidding! That's not Jewish. Yeah, because we had very insulated um, communities, so we intermarried and bred to some extent, but not all that much. Um, so, so that's one thing. But the other thing is that in Israel, the majority is no longer Ashkenazi Jewish. Um, what ha- the most Ashkenazi Jews? Most were killed in the Holocaust. So yeah. there's actually you know less of us now than there than there were then. And when Israel was established, most Jews there were European of origin and the leaders were European of origin. Within 10 years, the Jews from Arab countries outnumbered the the Ashkenazi Jews. And by 1967, it was a significant majority that were from Arab speaking countries or other countries that are not Ashkenazi, like Iran, India, uh, Turkey, and the biggest communities from Morocco and from Iraq. And there's even documents, really? in, yeah. And there's huh. even documents in '67 before the war, where Israeli generals, Ashkenazi generals, were saying, "Can we fight a war when most of our soldiers are not Ashkenazi? They're from all these primitive countries. Are we going to be able to win wars anymore?" <laughs> well, they won. They won the war really, really nicely. Yeah. <laughs> well, wasn't a big problem. Then in uh, that changed a little bit in '90, '90, '91 when the um, immigrants from from Russia or former Soviet Union, came to Israel. That was one million Ashkenazis showing up in Israel. Out of the blue, that kind of evened things up. But now, the largest group in Israel is mixed. There's more people who are Mizrahi and Ashkenazi in Israel than any other group. Like, I think of my group of friends, I'm 100% Ashkenazi, but that's mostly because my family's from the U.S. But when I think of my friends, most of them are mixed. 50-50, 75-25, that's the norm now. So it's, it's a very religious so country. So they started out
1: as Ashkenazi Jews, as a Zionist movement. But over right. the years, it became, the, the Jewish mix became largely Arab and uh, European.
0: Yeah. Now, okay. a lot of them would, would be offended if you called them Arab. Okay, yeah, like yeah. They, yeah, they I called can't... them Mizrahi
1: Jews. Is, how do you say that? Is, Mizra-
0: Mizrahi. Mizrahi, okay. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, Mizrahi Jews. <laughs> Yeah, okay, I'll go. Make sure to get that one right.
0: <laughs> yeah, just don't call them Arab, and you'll be fine. Yeah, yeah,
1: it's, it's touchy.
0: <laughs> to an extent, to an extent, they they were the ones who were from Arab countries. Not all of them, like Persian Jews, are not Arab Jews. But to the extent they were, they spoke Arabic. Right. I just was watching Faude the other day, and in there, this Mizrahi Jew, the father of the hero, the Ron, says. Mm. I'm an Arab Jew. I grew up in in Baghdad, and you, and you do hear that sometimes. Yeah. But a lot of them really don't don't like that because, unfortunately, sometimes Arab is almost a slur in yeah. in Hebrew. Very unfortunately.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. Oh, it uh, reminds me of the story of like the last the last two Jews in Afghanistan. I Ace I was, uh, I, where it's like. <laughs> they they were arguing you know they they got sent. they hadn't to spoken together. in years
0: they were feuding, <laughs> they were
1: feuding. They, only two only two jews and they were just in a fight constantly
0: you know the joke about the the jew on the um desert island uh, tell me about it okay i hope i can do it justice it's it's the, the the paradigmatic jewish joke so a jew is shipwrecked and he's the only guy who survives And he sets up shop in the island. This guy's really resourceful. He builds all this stuff, houses, grain storage, and two synagogues. And he's discovered by um, another group of Jews. And they look at what he's built, and and they're amazed. And they say, but listen, why do you have two synagogues? You're only one person. So he says, this is the synagogue I pray in every Sabbath. And this, I will never set foot there in my life.
2: (laughs)
1: so so i I don't know have you ever listened to dan carlin at all hardcore history
0: i have i have okay yeah yeah he's a lot of fun
1: so i love he talks about i think he talks about the israelis this way and i i i've i've known many israelis over uh, in my life and i find them some of the most fascinating people um because the israelis are like everybody else only more so which is i think it's just I think how Dan Carlin describes them.
0: I like, like that. I like is, that. I've never heard that before, but I like it.
1: This is you, you, right, you get it.
0: Um, I, I do. Absolutely.
1: So why why are Israelis what makes Israelis like this? Like why what is the character of the Israeli and what brings them to be and Jews almost in general? Like, what is
0: that? Well, um, I can speak to Israelis. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and, and and why they're why they're the way they are. I even have an I even have an article about it back from my, my academic days, or an article related to this. Basically, news arrive, the, the first Zionists um arrive in the late 19th century or early 20th century. Mm-hmm. Um, when we think of the early Zionists, what we're really talking about is a tiny group of people, about Five thousand people are are bring up are the the main what we call the second Aliyah, the second wave of immigration. They were the leaders of what of what would become Israel and the institutions that that would lead to the state of Israel. When they arrived, uh, the land was under the Ottoman Empire. Mm -hmm. It was swampy. Uh, No one was willing to sell them any land. They were dying of malaria. They weren't allowed to arm themselves. Uh, They faced a series of seemingly insurmountable problems. Uh, And also to make matters worse, most of them had no experience in agriculture. They were kind of, or limited experience in agriculture because they had been banned from agriculture where they came from, which is mostly Russia. So they had seemingly insurmountable problems. And what they developed was a culture of directness, of problem solving, at all costs um, efficiency, pragmatism, and no bullshit.
2: Mm-hmm. The
0: best thing that you can say to an Israeli um, is that they, they go straight to the point. Like we have a word for it; it's called Dugri. Dugri means Dugli. you know, okay. uh, keeping Sababa. it real, keeping it real. <laughs> yeah, well, Sababa is cool, right? But Dugri means keeping it real. And if you keep it real, that's the best thing that, that you that you can yeah. do. And nothing's worse. And being full of it uh and and there's nothing worse than uh not looking for solutions to the problem and i would always tell tell my students that the difference culturally is that so i used to teach i used to teach in canada yeah so i tell them okay so canadians they think inside the box americans they like to sometimes think outside the box yeah israelis don't like for there to be a box they just don't want there to be a box. They just want to look for the most the most pragmatic and direct solution. And and they really felt the, the early Zionists that they had to transform their entire identity. And they had to change everything that they'd learned from their parents. Um and everything was about expediency. So that that really rubbed off. Uh, and that culture continues, sometimes to our detriment. Because now that we have a state. That is actually quite sophisticated and tries to serve the people in many ways. Uh, we don't trust it. We try to outsmart it. We try to outsmart each other. We, uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's also very it's also very Mediterranean. Is another way of looking yeah. at it. Uh, the, the our culture is not that different from Greece, Italy, Tunisia, mm. Lebanon. There's a lot of similarities. People who write um, books about Mediterranean culture when they get to chapters about israel they don't have any problem uh any problem fitting us into into that culture when it comes to food when it comes to mentality so it's it's geographic and it's and it's circumstantial okay so do you think because i i
1: again you know this is just a reasonably ignorant opinion is of mine but i i've i've sort of Have viewed israel as like the tip of the spear of like the western civilization right (laughs) uh because you've got this sort of westernized at least allegiance wise country that's pretty militaristic right like you're you're winning some major surrounded by enemies on all sides winning battles and like and as far as I understand now has become a big uh, supplier of like spyware and stuff like, like, you know, MI6 spy gear kind of stuff, like hacking cell phones and whatnot.
0: Do you think Better than MI6. Better, yeah,
1: right, right. The MI6 is hopefully getting the Israeli stuff, right? see that, exactly you know, yeah. that, that, that pride in your face, exactly. <laughs> when you hear that, like, <laughs> you're like, yeah, it's way better than their shit. Um, it, it's like, do you think that that attitude and that practicality and that the, the, the dually is that kind of what translates into that sort of uh position? Like, how did
0: am I making sense here? um i i didn't completely understand the the okay you're talking about the military superiority or the militarism right. and then you're talking about western culture you're saying that how is one related to the other well, it's
1: it's israel is western aligned right like much more than it is like say um arab or china or you know i think actually they deal with russia a bit but um you know it's very practical but it's very practical and Israel, you know it's no secret that like the the israeli intelligence and the united states intelligence
0: like have relationships yeah um okay well there's a couple things to unpack here first i'll talk about about the the western angle It's very controversial not that anything you said is wrong yeah but it's very it's a very controversial uh issue one of the reasons it's a very controversial issue is that what you said is basically exactly what islamists say about Israel. They say that uh, Israel is, uh, yeah, the tip of the spear of Western colonialism. Any victory by Israel is a victory of colonialism. Mm-hmm. And what they and they point to evidence of that, A, that Israel sort of hatched out of the British mandate, yep. and B, that in, ni- in 1956 Israel cooperated with the French and the British to try to take over the Suez Canal. Yep. That was sort of the great moments of Israel as a, as a uh, spearhead of colonialism. Mm-hmm. Um the truth is is kind of different in, mm-hmm. in in many ways. Um colonialism, the idea of colonialism is that you have a, a mother nation that sends you to colonize. And the um Zionist movement was a spontaneous grassroots movement of people who were oppressed in mostly Eastern Europe, also to a lesser degree, um, Western Europe who, once they arrived in the land, started to negotiate with imperial powers to make a deal so that yeah, they, could, they could start a, a nation. Yeah. And, of course, this is pre-decolonization. There's no one else to talk to. There's no one who's not an empire. You know, you'd have to go to, go to Ethiopia or something to find someone who wasn't an empire. The Ottoman Empire is there.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Who wants to take o- take it over from the Ottoman Empire? The Russians, the Germans, and the British all empires. You got to talk to an empire. There's there's literally uh, no one else to talk to. Now, as far as Western culture, that's true um, again, to an extent. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Ashkenazi Jews are the ones who at least run these, the Zionist movement. There are mm-hmm. Zionists that, who aren't. And the Ashkenazi leaders, who to this day, most of the leaders are Ashkenazi, like Benjamin Netanyahu, yeah. for example, tend to see Israel as a European state. Mm-hmm. Um, the most famous quote about that is Ehud Barak, the former prime minister, called Israel a villa in the jungle, which I think is is very representative of what, how Ashkenazi Jews have, yeah. always, have always looked at, at at the Middle East. And Israel competes in the Eurovision song competition. And after being bounced out of um every soccer competition in the world now is part of the European Soccer Federation. I'm I'm a big, big sports fan. So it's it's actually bad for us because we can't qualify against, you know, France and Spain. But we could we could when we by the way, it got so bad that we were trying to qualify in in with Australia, New Zealand and Papua New Guinea. When I was a kid, I used to watch us play against Papua New Guinea. <laughs> and we almost qualified from there. Last time we qualified was 1970. That was when Asia still let us participate. Anyway, (laughs) um, sorry, big sacrifice. So you have that that Western element. But then, because A, the Ashkenazi Jews have spent so much time in the Middle East now, and B, so many of the Jews in Israel, the majority, are either non-European or at least partially non-European, the Israeli culture at this point is... Very uh, Middle Eastern in so many ways. Hmm. Our music is increasingly um, Arab-sounding. The food, Israeli food, is a combination of of Ashkenazi and Mizrahi food and authentic Arab food too. But about eighty percent of the cuisine is Middle Eastern. Like hmm. only twenty percent is the little, little bit they take. They take. Um, they take from Europe. And look, I mean, culturally speaking, I've can't tell you how comfortable i feel when i meet an arab um usually not so much in israel because there's all the you know political drama but when i meet an arab or a persian person abroad i have so much more in common with them culturally i feel Mm -hmm. than when i meet a belgian or a danish person i mean i just find them very cold and weird from my israeli perspective and if i meet an iraqi guy I have no problem. Like we immediately, huh. we we we, sp- we don't we speak the same cultural language in so many ways because we just have had those ties for so many years, coming from the same cultural wellspring. Um, and the Middle East starting to accept Israel now to to some extent. I think it the- is
1: right. It's kind yeah. of crazy. Only in the past few years, too, like five six years, it seems to have gotten quite different.
0: Well, it it came in stages, you know. It came in stages for sure. The the Oslo process was one important stage, Mm -hmm. but this is this feels like more of a watershed. It couldn't Mm -hmm. have happened without Oslo, but this is. Do we give Trump
1: and and Kushner any credit? Oh, absolutely.
0: Okay, absolutely. I don't know anything about this. Um, I don't know how. I don't think Trump was that involved, but he did appoint Jared Kushner. Yeah, and Kushner. I mean, I'll start with, he leveraged his uh, business interest and his intelligence. Like, I, he's, he's no idiot. Uh, I think he, to, didn't he
1: make like a billion dollars from like the UAE or something like that or Saudi Arabia? Well, I,
0: I, <laughs> let's, you wanted me to give credit. I, I'm anti-Trump and I could I could bash Kushner and Trump for this entire podcast if you want. I'm sure you don't want that. But I'm trying to give credit. Kushner put together those accords. Yeah, yeah. He was the main actor behind it. More and I know Israelis who worked on it. They all say he was the driving force behind oh, it. Not shit. the Israelis. Okay. Not the Israelis, not the State Department, him. And his wow. personal ties. Yeah. He put together the entire deal. And I think that deal is great. I don't let my my liberal bias tell me otherwise. And I'm glad that Israel's being accepted. It's a partial step, but it's a hell of a step. Mm-hmm. And I support it and I give Kushner credit. And I can say bad things about him all day long, but I'll give him credit. Let me tell you another thing I give Trump credit for. Okay. That that all my liberal friends almost disowned me for was um, when he started assassinating, you know, um, Iranian generals uh, like <laughs> Soleimani. When Trump assassinated yeah, Soleimani, yeah. I was, I don't know if I should say this, I was ecstatic because as someone who was involved in the Israeli security apparatus to some extent, mostly I, I have friends that I used to work in, 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 in there, um, Soleimani was our number one enemy. Yeah. We were trying to kill him for years. We... We, you know, it was a, the fantasy of the Mossad to kill him and Trump did it. And people said, if you kill Soleimani, someone will just take his place. No, no, there's no other Soleimani. That guy was, was a brilliant, charismatic uh, leader who knew how to unite people of different ethnicities behind the cause. And now Iran is struggling. It's struggling to have the same influence in those countries. In Some my, people are irreplaceable.
1: Why was he such an important target? I mean, I vaguely remember this, but I don't, you know, I never understood why it was a big deal.
0: Sometimes you have a, you know, I'm not going to compare it to Alexander the Great or Napoleon, but sometimes you have a person who has a specific skill set that makes him an absolute menace. Yeah. And Soleimani was. They appointed this guy. The Iranians appointed this guy. And, you know, the Iranians are are actually fairly incompetent in many, many things. And we're seeing that now. They appointed this guy and they said to him, listen, your job is to coordinate all the militias in the Middle East that um, we can work with. To one goal, which is well, two goals, to cement Iranian influence throughout the um, Levant and to threaten Israel and limit Israeli influence and American Mm -hmm. influence. And he went about doing that incredibly. And one of the reasons that today Iraq is so firmly in the Iranian camp, Mm -hmm. although there's some some changes with that too, is because of the efforts that, that he made. One of the reasons that Assad um, won the war in Syria mm. is because of the efforts that he made. He also worked very well with the Russians. Mm-hmm. Uh, he managed to, to to bring about a situation where the Russians, even though they didn't support all the Iranian goals, cooperated with them um, extensively. He knew how to work with a lot of Sunni groups as well. Uh, and he was um, a good general. He His military operations tended to be quite successful so for israel he was a menace and since he's been killed um israeli operations in the area are going much much better and and that's thanks to trump so here i am doing <laughs> trump propaganda for free so well, well,
1: i mean i'm i i'm no fan of trump i uh you know. neither am i
0: <laughs> but that I, was a great decision and that was his decision that wasn't kushner so no I kidding. Say good. About both All right. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't mean, know if I have anything good else to say about either of them, but <laughs>
1: um where we to go after that one. Uh <laughs> so why why is it that Iran and is what's the history behind that? Why are Iran and Israel just in such conflict, especially when you have so like Saudi Arabia is starting to get along with Israel, Egypt starting to get along with Israel, UAE, you know, why why is Iran, which isn't even close to Israel, comparatively, such a problem child?
0: You kind of answered the question inside your, your explanation. Iran's not close to the area. Yeah. Not only that, they don't speak the same language. Right. Not right. only that. They don't have the same religion. Yeah. Uh, and not, and the, the Shiites are seen in Palestine and everywhere that's relevant as somewhere between, you know, deeply misguided Muslims and heretics that deserve to die, depending on who you talk to. So they have a serious disadvantage in the region. So the only wedge that they've managed to latch onto is Israel. By being the most anti-Israel of all the countries in the region, they can have influence and take advantage of that, uh, of that conflict. And they've done everything they can to exacerbate the conflict, which again gives you a hint about why we were so happy that Soleimani was killed and all that. Iran has made Israel's life absolutely miserable since the revolution, since almost immediately after. Uh, and the two most the two most important examples are first, um, what happened in Lebanon. Israel occupied Lebanon in 1982 after a very successful military operation. Iran managed to turn the Shiites there, who were nominally friendly to the Israeli invasion at first, because they they were sick of the Sunnis and the Palestinians in the area, mm-hmm. into a militia that has been fighting Israel ever since, Hezbollah.
2: Yeah.
0: Starting with the blowing up of the Uh, um, Marines barracks in Beirut. So exploiting anti-Americanism, exploiting anti-Israel sentiment, all that gave them a, a toehold in Lebanese politics, which led to them being today, in many ways, the most important actor in Lebanese politics. Like Hezbollah, what they started in the early 80s, has been the dominant force in Lebanese politics for a long time. The other thing they did Uh, And you could almost say that they're uniquely responsible for is the failure of the Oslo process. It's something that people don't really talk about. Mm -hmm. But they funded and trained Hamas to bomb Israeli targets relentlessly. Not when the occupation was at its worst, but when the peace process was at its highest ebb Mm. in order to derail it. Because their worst nightmare is that Israel and the Palestinians should have peace because then they don't have a toehold in the region hmm. so they're very happy that the peace process failed they're very happy that hamas is now in charge of gaza all that gives them the opportunity to be influential in the region they also love the uh you know the war in syria that allowed them to be very very useful there so they're not na- they don't naturally have a stake in the levant so the conflict gives them the ability to To slip in. Meanwhile, the local Arab states, they've had enough of fighting Israel. And one of the reasons is what you said they're nearby. We can make their lives much more miserable uh, than we can Iran. We have to attack Iran very indirectly.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And we can't leverage um, groups, ethnic groups, there in the same way. We tried to do that with the Kurds to some extent and had some success. But there's no comparison because we're even more foreign in Iran than they are in the Levant, right? I mean, Israel is not an actor that you particularly want to be associated with. Hmm. So the Iranians have leverage uh, that we don't. And um, we've punished the Arab states quite a lot for working against us. And that's one of the reasons that we have peace with a lot of them, or at least they don't fight us as much.
1: And is this so that they can extract concessions and negotiations? Is this like, what are they is this so that they can rally their people or like, like how how does that like what like what are the tangible um benefits for them by having the influence in the levant
0: for the iranians yes well i think the best way to look at middle eastern politics is as if we're still in the middle ages or antiquity or whatever Um, The best way to look at at Middle Eastern politics, and that includes Israel, is as a struggle for the domination of the Middle East. Um, You always have actors who want to become the top dog in the Middle East. It is, we know from historical perspective, impossible, Mm. essentially. There's too much opposition. There's too much of a fracturing. But that hasn't stopped everyone from trying. And if you look at the Middle East through that prism, things make a lot more sense. Uh, you have Nasser as the main contender to try to dominate the Middle East up until the late 60s. Uh, after that, you have a competition between Saudi Arabia and Iran over who can become the most influential, which led to the radicalization of the entire area. If you think of the Middle East before the 70s, um, political Islam was ex- existed, but it wasn't particularly powerful. What what Saudi Arabia and Iran did is they funded their version of radical Islam. Uh, Saudi Arabia with some more success because it was Sunni, and changed the entire the entire region. And a lot of the Iranian military efforts were an attempt to counter the success of the Saudi soft power uh, success, which ca- came from the fact they had more money and that their their uh, Islam is, is Sunni. Then when you look at what Israel did in the early eighties with the invasion of Lebanon, that was Israel's attempt to kind of be too big for its britches. And Ariel Sharon, the defense minister at the time, mm-hmm. had a plan to turn all the Middle East into an area of Israeli hegemony. That failed miserably. Uh, Saddam Hussein had a, had a plan like that. Yeah, yeah. And the United States had a plan like that, right? You had Pax Americana. You, yeah. you had the wars in Iraq. Yep. Um, so, basically, everyone's trying to be the next Ottoman Empire in the Middle east. there and and that that's how it is. So when people talk about the Middle East and they use uh, terms like human rights and democracy and all this stuff, it's not really the right lexicon. The actors in the region use that to some extent. Israel believes in in democracy for itself, but uh, and Lebanon does to some extent. But they're not out there trying to export this stuff, you know. It's it's a dog eat dog world out there in the Middle East, and uh, everyone is trying to get as much power as they can. And there's a reason for that. If you don't have power in the Middle East, you end up in serious trouble. I mean, look at the poor Yazidis in in Iraq. Look at the Kurds until yeah. they uh, managed to put together a military, and still in Turkey, uh, if you if you're not armed, if you're not um, confrontational. If you're not willing to fight and win, your lifespan in the Middle East will be very short. Yeah. Okay.
1: So <laughs> in terms of like uh Israel is a democracy, but how does Israel maintain itself as a democracy, as a Jewish democracy, when I mean my understanding is that the Muslims might have more people in Israel eventually. Like, how does how does that work?
0: Oof. yeah that's a tough one well well okay first of all israeli democracy right now a lot of uh those of us who are in the center and the left feel like it's under threat from other jews so that's a separate issue i'll put i'll put that aside this is literally what some
1: of my israeli friends had me <laughs> ask you about it. he was like they're like yeah is israel really going to be in a democracy is it moving towards a ism of some sort
0: right so that's when I think of Israeli democracy right now, I think of those threats.
2: Yeah,
0: um, not. I don't think of the Arab threat right now. There has, there is a serious issue underlying, completely unresolved, of demographics, which you, which you alluded to. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah. for, for for those people who are who are listening um, or or watching and and don't know the the nuances, um, there's there's several categories of Arabs. Uh, living between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea so um, there are Arab citizens of Israel Mm -hmm. they're about 20% of the population of Israel there are Arabs living in East Jerusalem uh, many of whom do not have an Israeli citizenship most of whom don't but uh, live under Israeli rule Mm -hmm. then you have uh, Palestinians in the West Bank, they live under the Palestinian Authority government, which is a, a autonomy government formed during the Oslo process. And then you have Palestinians living in Gaza under the government of Hamas, a pro-Iranian terrorist organization.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So, you know, if you put all these groups together and compare their numbers to the Israelis, it's similar. Mm. there's arguments over who has more it's it's pretty similar and even though arab um, numbers aren't increasing as quickly as they were in the past they're increasing faster than the jewish numbers by the way israel is the most uh reproductively successful western democracy in the world israelis have kids that's so of the palestinians and the palestinians have slightly more it used to be like you know three israeli kids for eight palestinian kids but contraception has become very common. So now it's it's a little bit more. It's like four to three or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you put all that together, you have a, 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 basically a 50-50 country. But Israel uh, has played a game of divide and conquer intentionally, right? When, when Israel liberated or conquered the territories in 1967, depending on who you asked, they wanted the land, at least in the West Bank, but they didn't want the people right? Uh, you know, uh, Levi Ashkol, the Israeli Prime Minister at the time, he said, we want the dowry, we don't want the bride. We want the land, don't want the people.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: So, oh. what is Israel? It, it, you know, the reason for that is, dem- is demographic. Yeah. So, Israel has tried to find various ways to have the land that it wants and not rule all of the Palestinians, right? Um, So that's one of the reasons a lot of people support a two-state solution. Mm -hmm. Part of it is moral. I believe the Palestinians have a right to a state. Uh, But part of it is also that if there isn't one, then Israel is faced with two choices. Either they discriminate against all the Arabs and Palestinians to the point where maybe all these accusations of apartheid actually become true.
1: I mean, it sure looks like it would be.
0: Right. Uh, or it gives them citizenship, in which case there's no way the state can be a Jewish state. Right.
1: Yeah, that, that, that seems like the contradiction right there.
0: Like, it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be anymore. There's, there's just no way. Yeah. You could have a state with some Jewish characteristics at best. Right? But right now, the, the state is set up as a Jewish state in the sense that it's a haven for Jews suffering from anti-Semitism, which I believe is, is essential. And most Israelis do as well, including on the left. And, and that couldn't happen. So you have that demographic yep. tension. It's never been resolved, and um, I don't know if it ever will be be resolved. Right. Yeah. So, and yeah. and what I don't know. Are you familiar with uh
1: Martyrmaid? He does a podcast. Daryl. I forget. I'm forgetting his last name. Anyway, he he actually has a. a the reason i'm i'm bringing him up is cuz i started listening to hidden podcasts as well in his first 3 episodes and i'm only like halfway through the first one is about the formation of the state of israel and what i didn't realize is the magnitude of and frequency of uh, scapegoating of the jews in europe and russia besides the holocaust like apparently that stuff had been going on for a long time and was even like before the holocaust the original motivation for the zionists that you were talking about in the late 1800s showing up in israel right like is that is that that, yeah
0: absolutely and okay so this this i'm really glad you asked that because it gives me a chance to dispel a common myth Mm -hmm. about zionism and about judaism uh there's a myth um that Israel was created in response to the Holocaust. Right. Uh, it is basically uh, completely untrue. There's, there's yeah. very little truth in that. I wouldn't say like 0%. And that's, unfortunately, that's the standard narrative. And I'll tell you why uh, why it's it's not true. A lot of it is to do with what you just said. Um, Anti-Semitism was chronic in Europe. Right. Um, you had Jews being expelled from countries in the Middle Ages, both famously Spain, but also England.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, you had slaughters of Jews throughout Europe um, way before the Holocaust and, and nationalism. Uh, and, to, and to a great extent, you had a, a, you had a switch in, in what anti-Semitism meant in the modern era from um, religious to scientific to based on Darwinian yeah. principles to base based on, on racial principles. But anti-Semitism um was always there. But it's actually not the Western European anti-Semitism. The se- anti-Semitism that launched the Holocaust eventually that led to the formation of the State of Israel or at least led to the creation of, of the Zionist movement. It was the anti-Semitism in Eastern Europe. It was the anti-Semitism in Russia yeah. uh, and to a lesser extent in 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 Poland. Uh, so you had the, the czars at the time were undergoing uh, incredible pressures to liberalize, democratize, socialize, depending on, on who was pressing them in what direction. They led to reforms in 1905 and led to the collapse of the entire uh, tsarist empire in 1917. One of the best ways that they could unite people was by blaming the Jews for, yeah. for all problems. That was something everyone could agree on. Is that the Jews suck, right? So you you could unite the uh, Ukrainians, and you could unite uh, the the workers, and you could unite people from the Tartars, and everyone um, against the Jews, and so you had pogroms. Um, Pogroms—that's
1: the word I was forgetting. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Regularly, and if you and what, look at what is the, a pogrom? What's a pogrom? A pogrom is. It's just a good old fashioned. It's not dissimilar to what uh, happened to the African American community in Tulsa, uh, for example. You you yes, get together okay. all the all the racists and you come down Black and Wall you, Street, yeah, yeah, exactly. And you, you destroy the shops, you kill the men, you rape the women. Yeah, um, and Jews weren't allowed to uh, hold weapons. Yep. So they they couldn't fight. They couldn't fight back, and they felt they felt very powerless. And so the vast majority of the early Zionists came from these communities. Now, the most famous one was, is the most famous Zion, early Zionist is Theodor Herzl, who's Western European. But if you look at the people who were in the early Zionist Congresses, they came, vast majority came from Eastern Europe. And Pinsker and, so, and other people wrote about Zionism before Herzl discovered. Herzl was just very charismatic and he became the leader, leader of the movement. And the early Zionists who arrived Came from the communities that suffered pogroms. They personally suffered pogroms. Right. Almost all of them had personal experience with this. And the early Zionist poets wrote about their experiences in pogroms. Right. The famous one is Chaim uh, Nachman Bialik, who who wrote about that. Um, he said, "All all of the world is a gallows for the Jews," is what yeah. he wrote about. It, I about,
1: mean, one are the pogroms. what are the things Daryl talks about in his episode? Is like that the during the pogroms, like the western media would cover some of these things and they would describe the horrors but they would even say the censors will not allow us to print what would happen like uh, pretty bad shit apparently like the,
0: the worst stuff you can imagine yeah, yeah. um ha- happened it, it, it was a period of a lot a lot of barbarism it was mm-hmm. a, it was the same period where um the armenian genocide was taking place mm-hmm. and it was the same period when germany was conducting its own genocide in namibia uh, mm. A lot of the uh, antecedents of the Holocaust were found uh, were found in this in this time, and the United States actually had a, a fairly good role. They were the only country, or that I'm aware of, probably there were others too, that took an active interest in trying to um, convince the Russians not to do this sort of thing, mm. and they also took an active interest in the Armenian uh, Ar- Armenian genocide. So yeah, it was reported in American newspapers more than just about anywhere else, and the American government took more of an interest in it, in, hmm. it than, than it about anyone else. So that's a point of pride for, for, um, for the United States. So because, of, because the roots of, of, of Zionism come from those early pogroms and we're talking about a good 50, 60 years before the Holocaust. And it, we're talking yeah. the, the big ones are in 1896 and 1905, but there were a lot of smaller ones too. And um, so they're already building the future Jewish state and already got the Balfour Declaration and already formed the first military organizations, the um workers' unions, the healthcare corporations, everything that is still in Israel today, they already formed all that was already there by the time the Holocaust started. Hmm. What the Holocaust did um was both good and bad for Zionism. Right. It was bad for Zionism, it was terrible for the Jews, obviously, but for Zionism, it was bad for the Zionism because it killed all these Jews that could have been potential. Zionists, many of them were, um, especially in Poland, right-wing Zionists, by the way. The most popular movement in Poland was Beitar, which today is the Likud. So, mm. my, so right. my grandparents are, are, are Polish on my father's side. So my grandfather was a communist, but yeah. my grandmother was Beitar. So she was a revisionist right-wing Zionist. After the Holocaust, none of that seemed to matter anymore. So they married. But uh, before, they probably wouldn't have gotten along at all.
2: <laughs> um
0: so and and israel lost a lot of you know possible officers who who could have come and fought with it yeah. what it did do for israel um is that it um promoted awareness of the plight of anti-semitism to uh, a right. level that it hadn't hadn't been hadn't been before so you had a lot of headlines, you have the story of Exodus is, is based on, on some of these ships that were sent back to Germany or the people were interned in camps. It looked a lot like concentration camps in Cyprus by the British. It's one of the reasons the British left is because people were comparing them constantly to Nazis and it was a bad look. Yeah. Um, it helped with public opinion to some extent, but when you actually look at the report um, in 1948 by the UN, by UNSCOPE, that recommended the partition recommended the creation of a Jewish state, they barely mentioned the Holocaust yeah they looked at the um, location of where of Jewish communities they looked at their economic strength, they looked at their military strength they said that uh, that the Jews have built an infrastructure for a state they basically create facts on the ground and then of course, the partition was ignored by the Arab world or I should say, rebelled against by the Arab world. Every Arab state invaded Israel. Israel had to beat them off militarily. And not only did the Holocaust not help rally the world around the the Zionist cause, but the major Western countries boycotted Israel. They had a tripartite declaration. Don't sell arms to anyone involved in this war. The British, the French, and the Americans signed it. The British broke it extensively to arm the Arabs but no one was harming Israel except for the Russians. That's a different story. They armed them to piss off the British. And that's how Israel survived through Czechoslovakia. I also, I was
1: also, uh, my notes here have that, you know, the the young men who had gone through the the pogroms and like had that suffering. It's like they were either going to become Zionists or they would go to the Russian revolution, become Bolsheviks. Like and there was this, tension there
0: between which way are you going to go young man absolutely and the two are are intimately related now what i'm about to say is going to feed into some conspiracy theories but it's still historically true um the problem of anti-semitism in the 19th century was so severe for jews um because they they the reason 19th century was was such a disappointment is because when napoleon comes to power and makes sure that all the laws are equal for Jews. In France, there's incredible hope among Jews that they turn the corner, that anti-Semitism is not so much over. It's like an it's like a Barack Obama moment, you know, incredible hope. Mm. Then that was shattered by the rise of a new how does how did that hope turn out? <laughs> yeah, how how's that how's that hope? Was it, what did Palin, Palin say? How did that hope be changy stuff work hope out for you? Like yeah. <laughs> exactly.
1: Great Nobel Peace Prize, Barack. <laughs> Anyways, go on.
0: Yeah. So uh yeah, you know, hope hope is 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 anyway. So um the new anti-Semitism that arose as a response to the fact that Jews were able to get jobs and get ahead was actually in many ways worse and more violent as manifested eventually in the Holocaust. Uh, and the, so the sense among most Jews was there's just, this can't go on. Like, we need to solve this. And different Jews had had different reactions. The two main revolutionary reactions were communism and Zionism. Yeah. Right. I mean, Karl Marx wasn't speaking as a Jew officially, but why was Karl Marx out there trying to cancel nationalism? Why was Karl Marx out there trying to cancel religion? He didn't want to be persecuted. He, <laughs> I To me, that's the possibly subconscious, possibly conscious motive of Marx and all of these Jewish revolutionaries like Rosa Luxemburg and, and, and Trotsky and so many others. I think that was... Um, that was their solution, and Zionists had a different solution—a a nationalist solution. Both did a lot to change the world. Uh, only one, in my opinion, did anything to improve the status of Jews or, or the world in general, uh, and it was Zionism. But uh, yeah, communism, I think, is um, is definitely a, an attempt to, to solve anti-Semitism, and and there's other examples of that. In the Middle East, is a great is a great uh, example. There's a, a movement in the Middle East, called Pan-Arabism.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard of and the, idea,
0: and the idea behind Pan-Arabism is it doesn't matter if you're Muslim or Christian. All that matters is you're Arab. We're one people with one heritage. Yeah. And who invented that? Arab Christians. They invented the, the Pan-Arab philosophy because it eliminated the fact that they were being discriminated against, and treated badly by Muslims, by saying it doesn't matter that we're Christians. We're all Arabs. And communism is a way of saying it doesn't matter that we're we're Jews, we're all workers. It's it's, it's a similar, at least subconscious impulse. Of course, so many communists were not Jews, but I think that's why it was so attractive to Jews.
2: Sure, And that's
0: why my grandparents, one was a revisionist, Zionist, and one was a communist. It really represents those impulses.
1: Weird for you here. Let's uh, bring this in a slightly different direction here. All right. Was Jeffrey Epstein Massad
0: I certainly hope not.
2: <laughs>
0: I, listen, I, I don't pretend to know what the Mossad is doing, but uh, I seriously doubt it.
1: Okay. All right. Fair <laughs> enough. So did you, I sent you one other thing, the The Balenciaga thing now. Oh, yeah. So the reason I wanted to ask you about this was because, you know, I, I'd never even heard of Balenciaga before this whole thing went down. Um, Same. And was like, okay, there's this fashion brand and like they've got, for our listeners here in case you don't know it, they did this photo shoot with this uh, I, I forget it with a producer or director or something like that uh, had like very weird like BDSM sort of stuff with like kids in their portfolio and like... It's, it's a
0: strange ad. Really, really
1: strange and they had these teddy bears and bondage gears with these kids and like this one particular, and I'll, I'll try to make sure I edit this in so people can see the picture, but they had this tape roll with Ball, uh, it's, it's spelled Balenciaga, but B-A-A-L. And the reason I'm asking our, our friend here, Shail today about this is he goes on in one of his podcasts starts talking about Ball being one of the gods of the Canaanites. And specifically, he talks about that there's... Um, that. He, ball is known in modern terms for child sacrifice but you don't think that that's the case so i kind of wanted to get whatever you want to talk about in terms of this like who was ball like what's the modern mixed conception about this and what you have any idea what balenciaga
0: is up to yeah i i, I mean i can just speculate okay so it's just <laughs> starting with ball um ball is I would say probably the most important Canaanite god of all. Okay. Um, I would stipulate that as saying that probably in an era before we have records, um, El was the most important god. Mm. El still survives in in the sources we have as the Zeus of the Pantheon, Mm. but he's just not discussed all that much. It's his, his his son, Baal, um, is discussed a lot more. And then in some versions, it looks more like Baal isn't so much El's son as much as um, the new representation of El. And then he's the Zeus. So we don't mm-hmm. exact the family tree's a little murky, especially since there's no like one authority on it. So he's either the son of the Zeus or the Zeus of the of the Pantheon. He's mm-hmm. uh, he's a very useful god for agricultural societies. Won't surprise you, he's the god of rain. So if you have a drought. He's the guy you go to. So oh. my, my my belief is that Baal um, went over El because El, kind of like Zeus, was a thunder guy. And storms are a lot more useful if you're an agriculturalist than thunder, to, to put it mildly. <laughs> so so people just went straight to the sun, you know, kind of like uh, Christianity did yeah. uh, <laughs> or, or or something like that. Um, and he certainly was the most popular, at least male god. There's Baal and then there's... Uh, the Asherah that's the the female goddess of fertility um, in Canaan during the time of the of the bible and we know this with without any doubt for two reasons first the archaeology shows that he had more temples than anyone else and second man the old testament Tanakh is obsessed with this guy he appears so often he's the he's the nemesis he's the he's He's you know the 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 Israelite God for religious reasons I won't I won't say his name. Uh, that's his that's his personal nemesis, and he's uh, and to the point where if you it, it, the best way to understand a lot of the commandments in the Torah is as opposition to to Baal. Mm. Um, you, you don't do you don't do what what he did. You do the opposite of what he did. It, it gets it gets that extreme. That's why you have for example the golden calf. Yeah, because he's associated with cows. He loved cows. He even liked to have sex with cows and anything. So, worshiping a cow is the worst thing you could you could um, you could possibly do. Just just as an example. Um, now, if you read uh, several passages in the in the Tanakh, they talk about how children were sacrificed to Baal, uh, especially in Geh-Ben-Hinom, which is a valley in Jerusalem, not far from where I grew up. That that was, that that was the center um, of it. Now, the archaeological digs haven't shown any sign whatsoever of child sacrifice in Canaan mm. from anyone. Not from Canaanites, not from Israelites, not anyone. The textual evidence... Is significant if you if you look at the at the at the Tanakh. Not only is uh, is there a lot of talk about Canaanites sacrificing children, but also of wayward Israelites sacrificing children to Baal. And and this I get into a lot in the podcast. There's a lot of implication that early is- Israelites sacrificed their children to the Israelite God. Most most famously in the story of um, Isaac and abraham a lot of a lot of experts there's no consensus on this but a lot of experts believe that that story was an attempt to say okay this era now religion is over okay we don't sacrifice children anymore we don't do that anymore We're we're moving on to something else that's completely taboo now but there's enough clues aside from that that child sacrifice was part of the israelite tradition that a lot of um archaeologists and historians believe that that did happen both among Israelites and Canaanites. But the evidence is textual. It's not archaeological. Now, having said that, there is archaeological evidence that children were sacrificed to Baal. It's just not in Canaan.
1: Oh, okay. So children were sacrificed to Baal, but it just wasn't a Canaanite phenomenon. It was another region? Yes. So Baal was
0: exported to Carthage by the Phoenicians. Okay. The Phoenicians are part of you know the the levantine family they come they emerge from lebanon they're um canaanite philistine combo of some sort um and they move out throughout all of the mediterranean just like the greeks and the romans did and just as successfully at first they they that's why they were the romans rivals that's why the romans had to had to beat them twice and sold the earth to make sure they don't come back right. because they, they, they were tough they yeah. were tough. Uh, we don't have a lot of records from uh, written records uh, of theirs, but what we what they did find uh, on several Punic islands as we call there—the mm-hmm. the offshoot of the Phoenician culture that is related to Carthage—we uh, found shrines. Say, talking about we are sacrificing our children to the gods, basically, with a whole bunch of dead children that had been burnt. It's it's incontrovertible evidence. Like okay. some people said, oh, they were sick or whatever, but no, they're healthy kids. They were sacri- they were sacrificed to Baal, wow. and that leads me to believe that there probably was sacrifices to Baal in K- in Canaan as well, probably on a on a lesser magnitude. It was probably less central. Otherwise, why would it be mentioned in the in the Tanakh? And why do we have evidence of them sacrificing the same god somewhere else, albeit in a very different culture? So. That that that's that's what I'll, what I'll say about that. I, I my guess is eventually we'll find some evidence of it or or something like that. You know, people are finding new things all the time. Right. I my mean, yeah.
1: absent yeah. of evidence is not evidence of absence, right? Like
0: absolutely. You, yeah. We I think we have enough evidence to say it was not very central. It was probably just very shocking to the people who didn't like it because you know they were people too and they loved their children. So right, like, One incidence. Yeah. So if there was a cult in Gabe and Hinom, for example. Which is what they mentioned in the Tanakh. I don't know if they that really did. That would sacrifice a child now and then. That would probably attract a lot of attention, especially when that was no longer um, central to either religion. you know So it could have been very rare instances that got a lot of attention. Um, that would be my guess, considering we don't have evidence of it.
2: Now, now I,
0: mm-hmm. yeah now I, now why, I tend to
1: believe that religious practices have practical purposes generally speaking right especially ones that go far and wide right you know you have fasting fasting obviously i think has health benefits for people right like there's the 10 commandments pretty practical advice if you want to get along with your neighbors in many ways you know no doubt yeah (laughs) the success of these things like these ideas these memes you know help the fitness and survivability of the people who practice them you know, and many do you have any sense why child sacrifice would be a thing like did why why this was something that was done at all because my gut reaction is you're eliminating your population and potential supporters like people who are going to you know grow up and be in your armies or what have you your workers on your
0: fields like what would you do this for well i can only speculate i have yeah. read a little bit on it um but that's speculation too because we don't have access to what to what they were thinking but i look at it on two levels let's start with with pragmatic cuz that's that's what you're emphasizing i agree that to some extent a lot of these things have pra- have pragmatic um reasons i would say that most likely um children were sacrificed in moments of great distress when you really needed the attention of the gods to save your community or at least that's what people felt and if you want to look at it pragmatically they probably were thinking as uh, a, a mouth less to feed. Yeah, These were not times, I, I believe, when you had plenty of food. So, sacrificed a child had a pragmatic element. If you needed a bunch of manpower to fight the Romans, you were probably sacrificing less of your male children. You right. know, I, right. I, I'm guessing. On a religious level, it makes perfect sense because you're giving, it's the ultimate sacrifice. You're showing your absolute commitment to this God. There's nothing I wouldn't do for for this God. Uh, And if you actually believe that the God is answering your prayers, which this is kind of proof that they did, um, then you would think that that's the best way to get the reaction that you want from the God. So that's in a theological and pragmatic level so I, I can see why that would be something that some societies would do in moments of distress now you pointed out why it's not the best strategy in general and I think that's why we don't see that as yeah. uh, a central part of of cultures anywhere uh to I, it to just feels regularly like regularly you can't outcompete your neighbors if you're
1: getting rid of your offspring that just doesn't seem to make sense to me
0: yeah and and that's why that's why it's rare. And I don't know. I mean, maybe the fact that we find these instances on islands is because there was no immediately uh, threatening neighbor. That's a, that's another possibility. Oh, that's I, interesting. I, these were islands where 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 we found this. Uh, I mean,
1: an island can only... If I'm speculating here, obviously, but you have a much more limited... Um, if, if you're only getting your resources from the island and the surrounding sea, you have a much more limited population that can exist on that island
0: exactly so from a pragmat on a pragmatic level i i guess we, we we can see where that logic uh comes from again it's not a very common logic we don't see a lot of cultures we see human sacrifice is pretty common uh among humans but yeah uh sacrificing your own children on a regular basis is not something that most societies do
1: well i mean i think
0: to me, it makes more, much more
1: sense from a pragmatic point of view to sacrifice somebody who's you know not an
0: ally of yours, like the Aztecs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. like the Aztecs, right? That makes a lot more sense. It's like you're li- you helped you're us limiting. win the war. Now we will sacrifice the victims of the war. You helped us win. Terrible, but I get that. I um, get. Oh yeah,
1: I get a lot I'm of be- terrible things. Sacrificing yes. your own children, I don't. I'm
2: like really
0: <laughs> i can't wait for i can't wait for this to get out shale justifies human <laughs>
1: sacrifice we're justifying human sacrifice on this show today kids how can you integrate this into your religious practices and show results into your
0: culture in the future it didn't work for the aztecs kids they, they ended up losing
1: yeah now, do you know anything about lot. the aztec are you uh, are you into that stuff I mean
0: I I've read about the Aztecs I'm no expert I probably okay, I probably okay. know as much or less than you do. Okay okay I I, I won't query you on that
1: one but I would Please I don't. find that I've heard some crazy stories about the Aztecs and like you know, just the, the 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 Spanish showed up and they found hell on earth basically over there.
0: Well I'm I'm seeing a lot of that from people who are justifying the, the genocide that happened in in um mesoamerica they they rely on some of these spanish propaganda to yeah. say yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah they had it coming and well, that's I, I what, think...
1: that's exactly what i've heard too and like i'm wondering like i would love to talk to somebody
0: who knew what yeah up there find find the uh the guys doing the podcast on that because i know history too. of the land of mexico <laughs> Because yeah, that, that that would be interesting. But of course, I do know enough to say there's no justification for genocide and uh, <laughs> leave it at that.
1: Fair, fair enough, fair enough. So let, let me ask you this, turn this in a slightly different direction. You know, what what has been, we'll start with, what has been like the thing that you think you've learned most from doing this podcast? Like what, how has your thinking changed from the time that you started this to the time that you are now?
2: Hmm.
0: I think i have a lot more uh respect for people i had i had a lot less a lot less um respect for i thought of in very very abstract ways you know you think of all those those pagans think of all those you know those um scribes who were making up stories you think you think of all those all those nutty egyptians with their afterlife um cultish obsessions and what really start to see is how sophisticated the worldviews were, um, how deep the philosophies were, how they found solutions to incredible problems in circumstances we can't even imagine. I mean, in, in so many ways, these people were superior to us. Mm. We'd be helpless in these circumstances. And uh, their, some of their ideas were so good that we're still just trying to figure them out and live by them today. Mm. So if there's, if there's anything I've learned, it's to respect the uh, old school Israelites, Egyptians, Canaanites, Amorites. I good job, guys. You know they 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 built um, the civilizations that that we have all um, come from, and uh, I don't think that they made more mistakes than we do. Uh, <laughs> probably about the same amount. Yeah, yeah. No, I I I feel that the more that I
1: study religion and history, the the the. The less modern hubris, I feel like I have, like the 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 wisdom, yeah, the the wisdom that these people had over the years is worth contemplating deeply, uh, and 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 not being dismissive as oh, it's just hocus pocus, magical
0: thinking. Agreed. Agreed. And and maybe also the other tendency is is that us historians tend to have sometimes of looking at, at today is worse somehow is the, uh, the other uh, extreme we sometimes go to. Maybe we need to remember we're also doing the best we can in, in very difficult circumstances. Mm-hmm. And maybe some of the things right now that we don't even fully understand will have an incredible amount of value um, in the future. Mm-hmm. So it it, it, puts, it really puts things into perspective. And of course, there's, there's just the thing that we all know, but the more you deal with history, the deeper you feel it. The difference between yeah. sort of knowing something and feeling it. And that is that um, everything's already happened to some extent. Yeah, these situations have already occurred uh, in different contexts, and there's just so much that that we can learn. And I just find that because I I know a lot of history, when I enter into a conversation with with people about about modern politics, very often there's there's such a gap to bridge of of knowledge because I'm uh yeah. you know I just I I need them to know all this stuff to, to understand what I'm what I'm uh, what I'm talking about. Yeah. And uh, I guess that's where the podcast comes in. It's trying yeah. to, to, yeah. to bridge. Yeah. I mean, that's that,
1: one of the reasons knowledge. I find these conversations so fascinating. I mean, that, cause that, uh, that change in philosophy, change in knowledge and what sparked it, I find absolutely, absolutely fascinating topic because I mean, I'm my personal philosophy has changed quite a bit over, you know, like the past 20 years. And I, you know, for example, um, you know i i used to think what the hell is israel doing there you know clearly they came in and they took the land from the people and blah 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 and then you know at some point i came to the conclusion I'm like you know i support the israelis cuz i have friends who are jews and israelis and fuck the rest of it cuz when it comes down to it it's kind of just you're on you're on the team with the people who are on your team right like history i don't know <laughs> you
0: can tell the story a lot of different ways yes exactly and then of course once you understand the topic really well not that I necessarily know any topics as well as I, I should uh you start to have a lot of humility about about other things yeah you, you mentioned the Aztecs sure I could spout off something about the Aztecs I don't know anything about the Aztecs yeah. if, if I sat and and did this amount of research into the Aztecs and you know I could say something coherent possibly but I, I, you just realize how little you know, and how much you rely on stereotypes yeah. for for your knowledge. Not you specifically, all of us on on any other region, any topic that we don't really fully understand. Uh, and it, and you know what? He, it, going against the spirit of the times, it's also given me a lot of respect for the experts and the archaeologists, uh, and the professors, and the, the the scribes, and all the people who. In, both in 21st century woke Academia and you know Middle Ages sitting in sitting in monasteries writing things down these people really tried hard and you know they had their limitations but boy the the, the job they've done and, and the critical thinking that so many of them have have executed and uh you know every every episode of, of my podcast or any historical podcast is standing on the shoulders of of the work of so many brilliant dedicated people who really do their jobs well and you know really thank you thank you to 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 all of them throughout the ages
1: nice Nice. yeah absolutely um so beyond just the podcast you know you describe yourself as uh you know uh, i think you use the word liberal yeah i'm a liberal zionist liberal zionist we exist and if i also did detect a slight amount of contempt for the woke in there
0: no oh, no okay. i consider i consider professor. myself i consider myself liberal and not progressive okay um and that means that i have some uh i have some important differences you may have noticed when i talked about to israel i took from a security standpoint
1: yeah yeah I, yeah uh, I, this is what I'm trying to tease apart here. yeah,
0: <laughs> I have a Darwinistic view of international politics, yeah. Um, I believe in the American military. I support our troops. Yep. I believe in capitalism, yep, free markets, all that. but um, I don't have the allergy to to um, wokeness or pronouns or any of that that a lot of people on the on the right have. Mm-hmm. I don't particularly want to deal with the politics of gender, but I find myself doing it a lot um, because I feel like um, there are certain segments of society that are being persecuted in ways that are alarming right now. Uh, which, and I'm, talking about the, like... I'm talking about the trans community. Mm-hmm. So that's why like, I, I agree with a lot of the causes that woke people Support, mm-hmm. but I have very little attraction for the um language and performance mm-hmm. behind it, and I disagree with them on certain things, like, like what I just said. You know, that's why I consider myself a liberal. I vote, you know, to put it bluntly, I vote for Biden, not for Sanders. Mm-hmm. Or uh, I, I used to vote for John McCain. You know, I, I, I support like a robust American foreign policy and and free markets, but I also generally support you know um a lot of left-wing social causes
1: gotcha gotcha interesting
0: and, and in israel i never voted for merits or, or labor i mean you're i used to vote i used to vote Likud when i was young oh yeah yeah i used to, yeah. vote, I used to interesting. Vote Benjamin. so you
1: went from like you went from israeli right wing to more classical liberal i would describe it in the united states
0: well here's the thing Um, the Likud is called the Nationalist Liberal Party. Mm -hmm. And the reason it's called the Nationalist Liberal Party is because it was a union of the Revisionist Party, which I talked about my grandmother belonging to, and the Israeli Liberal Party. Mm -hmm. And the first, the man who created the Likud, Menachem Begin, was a classic 19th century liberal, called himself a liberal, Mm -hmm. uh, supported um, equal rights for Arabs uh, in the country, so even supported what you would today call activist judges. Uh, he he was very much he was very big on civil liberties in the classic hmm. sense. So I grew up supporting the the side of the Likud that was that was liberal, hmm. a side of the Likud that Benjamin Netanyahu once belonged to. And that that included a lot of other people that probably won't mean all that much to your non-Israeli listeners, like uh, Moshe Arens or or uh, Menachem Begin's son Benny Begin, Dan Meridor, a lot of other people who who are are liberals. Um, the Likud has changed since then; has uh, become more populist, like the right wing everywhere. I have definitely moved somewhat to the left. A lot of that was trying to uh, well researching Israel. And also, work, trying to explain Israeli positions abroad when I work as a diplomat, um, made me realize that there's some things we can explain, some things we can't. You know, and that there are some things that seem all right when you're on the ground in Jerusalem, and that don't really um, fly when you try to look at it a little bit, a little bit more, uh, more objectively. And then, of course, the demographic element we talked about. I don't particularly want um, Israel not to be a Jewish state or to become. Um, To become an apartheid state Hmm. and i would never consider in the united states i would never consider voting republican as long as it's the trump populist wing Hmm. of of the party and that's pretty much the only wing in control um right now if the republican party ever uh comes back to itself i would give it a second thought i'm a big fan of liz cheney's i even have a t-shirt of hers Hmm. So those are my politics. But I don't have a contempt for wokeness as much as it, I find it somewhat comical. But I don't hate it. <laughs> well, that's good. You
1: are living in L.A., so that would be very uncomfortable.
0: L.A. is uh, L.A. is not as progressive and uh, as people as people think that it is. Uh, the, the Rick Caruso almost won the election here because mm-hmm. a lot of people want the police to be stronger. They want to throw the homeless people off the streets. They, uh, you know, they don't want to build. Sh- homeless shelters anywhere near them not in my backyard yeah they, yeah the local politics here are um it, this is not San Francisco okay okay yeah I mean, the way people talk about homeless people in LA is um frightening and dehumanizing i i i would say not everyone but way more people than you'd think
1: hmm gotcha yeah it's uh i mean i i visited down there my brother lives in LA uh, Sherman, Sherman Oaks area. Um, yeah, it's in the valley. Yep. in the valley. Okay, yeah, I don't, I don't know L.A. that well enough. And, nice neighborhood. Um,
0: not too many homeless people. Not
1: <laughs> the yeah, the 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 tent. The, the, there's a lot of tents down there. It's it's pretty overwhelming. It's right. I mean, I'm yeah. up up in Seattle, and it's a, it's it's a little bit harder to live, but it's a, there's a lot of tents. It's uh, and during during COVID, it was um, you know some parks that were nice to go to became completely overwhelmed over yeah i've been
0: to seattle recently you have you have some similar problems but not on the same scale the only city yeah. with the same scale is san francisco
1: oh I my mean, san francisco was just it was uh, mad max territory it was just un- unbelievable i, I went to somewhere in the mission and like just I, I i i could recognize at least three different forms of taking drugs being done in open air you know from a distance i was
0: like whoa that's this is different yes i, I live in hollywood i'm, I'm aware and it's 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 not as bad I, and i don't have any don't have any solution sadly i was about to that was my next question like because you know i
1: i I, I mean, to me, the I'm, a, I I'm more of a is... dehumanist. Like, I just like men in spears, spears and swords need to go in there and like clear things out.
0: Well, no, I, 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 I I'm definitely the, the opposite. <laughs> I, I would even go. I mean, I think one of the main problems is that in order to to get there's housing, we pay a lot of taxes and and there's housing. I have a yeah. friend who works in, in this in this field in the municipality. One of the main problems is that they want people to be completely clean from drugs before they move them in. Mm. And that seems to be very unrealistic. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. You, I think probably better is to move them in without preconditions and try to, and except for counseling or, some, or something. Uh, what are do you doing? They ruin sentences. the property. Yeah, I know. I know. I've heard, all, I've heard all the counter arguments. Start like I said, I don't have good solutions.
1: Yeah.
0: I don't, I don't have good solutions.
1: <laughs> yeah. This is, this is the, this is the, the the liberal unfortunateness of the, I, I always find it's like you there's some situations where it's like the situation has to be worse than what the people have right now right like you the alternative has to be worse than living on the street in order to convert people over <laughs> I, I mean, I don't have any good solutions. I have none. Yeah. There's no nice things that I've been able to come up with that um, remove people from, you know, ten cities.
0: I mean, I, I I I do my best. I volunteer in the community. Yeah. I, I try to help, but uh, I, I have no solutions. This this is above my pay grade. Just give me the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, you know, the simple <laughs> stuff. Like some of the same yeah. principles. Well... <laughs> In some ways that's so much more more simple, at least for me. This is this is stuff I really don't understand. I I didn't grow up with any of this. I grew up in Jerusalem in the 80s. Yeah. We didn't have homeless people. I remember I remember a news um edition when they said there are there's a hungry child in Bet Sha'an in it's a city in the north. Yeah. She has nothing to eat. And that was like leading leading the news. And uh that's what that's what our society was like. You know, it was very egalitarian, had a lot of elements of socialism. And yeah. um, it wasn't very rich at that time. You know, capitalism kicked in in the 90s, but there were there weren't homeless people or, or hungry people. If there were, you'd find the person and you'd solve the problem. Yeah. It's, and, it's and how, many people,
1: how many people live in Israel?
0: Well, right now, it's close to nine million.
1: Nine million or so. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I and I think part of it is it's a problem of scale, right? you know back in the 80s how many were people were in israel
0: uh 5 4 5
1: million yeah you mm-hmm. know you at some point you you have a you have a small enough population and everybody has enough things in common that you feel like you're in it together i think one of the problems in the united states is that there isn't that collective sense of like we're all in it together and there's clearly some people who are willing to you know not do you know take advantage of the systems and and whatnot as as much as possible and, and not participate and you have this like this want to be empathetic and take care of people as though you know they're, they're your family and, and and you know, uh, treat them well. In the same time, you know, too many people who are not going to participate in a positive way.
0: Well, part of it is the size, for sure. Yeah. Part of it's the culture. I mean, I've, I've lived in, in in not too many countries. This is like the fifth country I've lived in for a certain amount of time, fourth. It's definitely the least community-oriented and yep. united. I mean, the... the and, just the idea of the rugged individualism is so hardwired into American society uh, that, aside from the size, it adds it adds another layer uh, of of isolation. That's one of the reasons I think yeah. we have so much violence here and mental illness here because we're we're community oriented creatures yeah uh, and rugged individualism uh, has spurred America to great heights, but it's also uh, damaged the social ties by by definition and and by intention
1: i i I think that's absolutely true like especially when you it's a very weird dynamic in the united states because you have all of the quote-unquote elites end up going to college and they quite frequently go off to college at a place that's far from their homes and then they move and they get jobs quite frequently in places that like they they don't have any roots on so you get this this disparate sort of fractionalization of people without roots within a community coming in and that sense of community is just really gone and you know my my wife and I, neither of us are from seattle um and we don't we don't have family nearby and we when we had our first kid six months ago and congratulations thank you thank you it's a it's great um and you know we joined this group of other new parents just because we wanted to have a community that was you know doing the same sort of things and it really it just it was baffling to me it's like why in the world are we organizing our lives like this it's it's it just lack of community it's it's the it, it just you know and i think it i think it's endemic like you were saying and it's not just the scale it's it's just how how we expect to live our lives and you know, what what's been normalized i find it very odd and i'm i'm yeah. back down in the middle of it i'm you know <laughs> i participated in it like this for 20 30 years now
0: and you, you can't argue with the results the united states has has had on a creative level it's a it's yeah. absolutely astounding some of that is geography
2: yeah, but I some mean, of
0: that is some of that is that that exact spirit that we're criticizing. Yeah. So it has a duality um but it's very harmful. It's it, very definition of a double-edged sword.
1: Yeah, for sure. It's uh it is it's very you know, it, but is Israel on the other hand, it's like it has a lot of that creative impulses and I think because just like the United States, the people who went there at least for the the, the Jews were the adventurous spirit you were you were going you were leaving somewhere and going on a great adventure to you know build something and the kind of people that that attracts are different kinds of people
0: yeah yeah and the kind of people who rise to the top in that kind of adversity are a certain kind of kind of people uh as as well yeah we managed the to first few so generations that. yeah yes well, well still i mean there's a reason israel's high tech is so yeah It's so successful Um, and military strategic thinking is still very high level. And uh, yeah, Israel has more um, academic publications per person than any other country in the world. Uh, You you have
1: taxi drivers in Israel. You have to have like a master's degree from what I hear.
0: Yeah, possibly. I mean, I've had Uber drivers. I mean, if I if you believe what they tell you anyway, <laughs> I've had Uber drivers here with all kinds of achievements. I <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, Shael, is there anything else we uh should be talking about? Well, I would like to plug my second podcast. Oh, I do have yeah, another absolutely. podcast now. Um, I don't know why I'm doing so many podcasts, but uh well I, I, my other one's one. called Awesome. I, I have another one it's called Israel Explained. Israel explained, and, okay. And what I'm doing there is, you know, all the questions that everyone keeps asking me about Israel, um, I I try to answer them them there. So I I did one on, uh, is there going to be another Intifada, another Palestinian uprising? Now I'm doing one on the on the judicial reform. Oh, you we should probably talk about that before we go uh, about the judicial. You said someone asked about that.
1: Oh, I um, tell me about it.
0: Oh, okay. Uh, So at some point in our conversation, we were talking about whether Israel is going to remain a democracy.
1: Yes. Yeah, yeah.
0: And right now there's um, a little bit of, a lot of concern over a suggested package of reforms by the Netanyahu government. Mm
2: -hmm. Uh,
0: The Netanyahu government is um, suggesting the following changes. Um, One, about how Supreme Court judges are elected that they should be elected um, only by politicians when currently there's a combination of politicians and judges and the lawyers' guild. Uh, the other is to remove the ability of the Supreme Court to uh, overturn any laws made by Knesset, made by made by the parliament, and also to remove um, the reasonability clause, which is another mechanism by which the Supreme Court says that laws aren't reasonably applied or phrased so basically, uh, removing the most of the tools of uh, judicial oversight over over legislation, um, which the people who support it say it's because there's activist judges who legislate from the bench, something very familiar for for the uh, for the United States. They also say that the judges are unrepresentatively left wing. Mm. Uh, those who are against it, including myself, um, they say that. The only check and balance on the government is the Supreme Court, because in Israel, we only have one chamber of parliament. And there's no separation between the executive and the legislative arm of government, because it's the same. You have a coalition that is selected in the in the Knesset, in the parliament, and they run the executive. You take members right. from those parties and you put them in charge of the various executive ministries. So um it's it's removing the only check and balance on on the government so people ask all the time is this going to end up challenging Mm -hmm. israeli democracy uh and the answer to that is that it makes it very easy for the executive to challenge and undermine democracy if it wants to yeah very similar to and we don't have to to it's not Theoretical, the, the most similar cases are Hungary and Poland. Mm. Um, and to a lesser extent Turkey, where they did similar things to mm-hmm. to the to the judicial branch. And the results were not an out complete abolition of democracy, but democracy is hollowed out to a great extent. Mm. I mean it it certainly
1: sounds like from what you describe that not having judicial oversight could would lead you in
0: a tyrannical direction or possibly yes and and the the, the main counter argument just just to be fair it focuses on the flaws of the justices yeah. and their approach which are some of the criticisms are are warranted but you can make a lot of the same criticisms against the US Supreme Court but mm-hmm. you wouldn't want to remove its constitutional oversight role um, yeah. in in the United States and if you did by the way the results w- would be less severe because you have the separation between the executive and the uh, legislative branch and the legislative branch is divided in a, in a bicameral Congress. Mm. So the, the damage the United States, if you, if you took away the Supreme court's constitutional oversight would be terrible, but it wouldn't be as bad. Yeah. (laughs) That's, that's my, my take on it anyway. If you want more, okay. listen to Israel Explained. <laughs> Israel
1: Explained. Are you going to have now? How? What's your format of this podcast going to be? Is it just going to be you reading off questions that are submitted? Like,
0: well, I'm, I'm. I give in-depth dives into topics right now. I am answering questions, especially on this one, because people are asking me a lot of questions about this topic. Um, But I think this is a good format for interviews. Um, So I think I'll I'll start bringing in start bringing in people to to interview once i have once i have it going uh, better so far i have three episodes fourth one's coming out tomorrow okay
1: i had no idea i'll have to I'll definitely check that out how how long are the episodes
0: shorter they're like uh 20 something minutes like 20 Three okay. so minutes
1: bite size bite size nice yes. nice cool cool <sighs> i think that's going to be a lot of fun so what else what else should we anything else we should be ta- talking about
0: no I think I think that covers all the bases. Unless you have any more any more questions, I
1: I think I've I've gone through my list and more. So this has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for coming on the furrowed brow. It's it's been a pleasure. This was even more fun
0: than I expected.
1: Awesome. I I mean, hopefully we can do it again and we can do more more asking Israelis uh, questions and we can dive into it. Uh, We'll see what kind of anytime you
0: want, as long as you don't ask me about the Aztecs.
2: (laughs) Cool, man. Take care. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. You too.